We're looking this morning at Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. Um, So if you have a Bible or want to grab one of the church Bibles, can you turn it to Exodus chapter 32? It's page 90 in the church Bibles. We are going to read the full chapter. Um, It's a fairly long chapter, but it's got a wee bit of a narrative to it, so it helps to follow it through. Um, Exodus chapter 32. Let's hear God speak to us. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took them, they took what they had handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat, drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you, whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster upon your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the covenant in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Then Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting and he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tables or the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf of the people had made and burned it with fire. He ground it up into powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And when they gave me their gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And Moses saw that the people were running wild 
and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth throughout that camp for one end to the other, killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you are against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. And the next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And Moses replied, or the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is God's word. Amen. So plague, judgment, idolatry, we probably very much feel we are in Old Testament territory this week. And one of the things I have been trying to say, and the, the drum I've been trying to bang as we go throughout the book of Exodus is that the, the, the false idea that we can often have that the Old Testament's a God of judgment and the New Testament is a God of grace is just not found in the book of Exodus. Instead, what we see is God entering in to draw people out of slavery and bondage to save them and bring them into relationship with himself. And you might be thinking, well, how does that fit with what we've just read? And I think it's helpful for us to realize what is going on here. Because what has happened is at this, in a sense, fragile stage, the people of God have just entered into a covenant, a vow, a promise with God to be his people as he will be their God. That they will worship him and serve him through the tabernacle, which we looked at in previous weeks, which is where God will meet them and be with them and his presence will dwell amongst them. They have just entered into this and immediately they have went after an idol. They have made something of their own hands to worship. It's almost like, could you imagine somebody having an affair on their honeymoon? That you would, you would think, how is that even possible? You know, there's such a short space of time and this fragile stage that the marriage is at and you've already ruined it. And that is sort of what is went on here because a covenant is the, the, the very similar to how we view marriage. We would say marriage is a covenant as well. And that is what has happened right from the offset. Right from the offset, the people of God have committed this horrible act of unfaithfulness to God by creating something that they bow down and sacrifice towards. And we might think this is a very medieval problem. You know, idolatry, idols, worshiping, sacrifices, we might think this is very far from how we behave today. And yet, you know, the, the, the French reformer, John Calvin, said that 
Man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Now, John Calvin was a particularly miserable fellow, I must confess, um, if you ever read any biographies about him. But he has a point. There is something in our hearts where we may not cast golden calves, but we are very swift to place things on pedestals in our lives where only God should dwell. Idolatry is not some ancient problem that exists in some foreign part of the world, but it is something that resides in the hearts of all of us here. Our idols may not be silver or gold, but I am sure they have the same draw in our hearts as a golden calf would have, be they family, career, prestige, our own reputation. We all have idols this morning. And I want us to look a wee bit at that just in three separate ways. I want us to see the nature of idolatry, the heart of idolatry, and the remedy for idolatry. And I promise, even though we're talking a lot about idolatry, it's not going to be as hellfire and brimstone as you think. So what is the nature of idolatry? What, what even is idolatry? What is, what's going on here? Um, and I think one of the best ways to maybe think about idolatry is not necessarily as a statue, but idolatry is whenever we try to relate to God or the way we try to seek after God, whenever we seek after him in ways uh, that he has not prescribed. So idolatry is whenever we try to seek God or seek after God in ways that he hasn't prescribed and he hasn't commanded, and we fall into ruin in some way. If you look down with me, you see that the Israelites, Moses has disappeared, and they want to build something to worship. That's the, almost their impulse immediately. They've, they've witnessed this wonderful act of salvation coming out of Egypt. And now they want to worship. They want to give thanks in some way. Moses has disappeared. And in their minds, they therefore think, well, that then means God has disappeared from us because his man, his representative, Moses is no longer here. So they begin to panic and they say, well, we'll make one. We'll make a God. And so they gather up the gold in verses three and four that, that they would have plundered from the Egyptians, the gold jewelry, and they smelt it down and Aaron crafts it into a calf with tools. But what's really interesting is, do you notice whenever Moses comes back at him later, he says, oh, we just melted it all down and a calf fell out. You know, all, He's already trying to excuse it, but Aaron deliberately crafts a calf. And then the people cry out in verse four saying, behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. You know, it's immediately following into ruin. Aaron in verse five builds this altar and says that they'll perform sacrifices to it and fellowship offerings. And whenever Moses had went up the temple and whenever he, or went up Mount Sinai, and he's going to go up Mount Sinai again in a wee bit, we'll read that Moses has to have fellowship offerings with God. So what they are trying to do is they are trying to relate to God, this golden calf, in the same way that they would have related to the covenant God, Yahweh. That, that's the heart of it. They're sacrificing. They're trying to lay down what they think is acceptable worship in some way, and they're borrowing from the cultures around them to do it. And we might think this is a very foreign problem, but, you know, um, whenever I was in Scotland, I had a friend who was a Hindu, Amit, and um, Amit, I, I used to invite Amit along to church, and Amit would come quite happily because in his mind there were hundreds of millions of gods, and the God of Christianity was just another one. But he always found our worship very strange because he would always show up with food 
or with sweets because whenever he went to temple as a kid in India, he would leave sweets or food on the temple, on the, on the altar to sacrifice it to Vishnu or to whatever was the god that they, or whatever temple they were in that day. So this is a very common way that a lot of people in our world still worship, laying down things as sacrifice. And whilst that's a little bit of what's going on here, I don't think what the Israelites are doing is straight up sacrifice in that sense of laying down before a statue. Because as you read through the Bible, you'll come across passages that really show you how foolish idolatry is and making idols is. So Isaiah will describe the foolishness of idols in his book of prophecy by saying that, you know, a man will cut down a tree and some of the wood he'll use to make an idol and the other half he'll burn his, food for, burn his fuel for the fire for food. And he's almost showing that the, the, the foolishness of it and the foolishness of what the people have done here. But what they have done here is a little bit different because if you look down with me, whenever Aaron begins to speak in verse 5, he says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And if you look down, you'll notice Lord's all in capital letters. Whenever you read that in the Bible, what that's trying to flag up in your mind is that it's not necessarily the word Lord there, Adonai, but rather it's the covenant name for God, Yahweh, that's being used. So whenever the people of God build this golden calf, it isn't, strictly speaking, another God, but it is something that they are attributing to Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who they are trying to represent in some form. And as if you look around in the other cultures of the ancient Near East, this young calf, or if you want to be really, really pedantic, um, it's probably actually like a young bull, because we think of a, well, I think of a young calf as like a suckling calf that you, you know, it's a little cute thing with Bambi legs, but really, this would have been like a young bull, a young, healthy, strong-looking animal. And young bulls, whenever they were placed on statues in the ancient Near East, they weren't the gods themselves, but they were almost like a pedestal holding the god aloft. They were almost like a way of saying that where God resides is on the back of this strong creature. And so, as the people of God begin to worship and sacrifice before the golden calf, it's not necessarily that they've made for themselves a deity, but rather they are attributing to this statue everything that Yahweh has done and who Yahweh is. And we might think that then makes the events towards the end of this chapter a wee bit of an overreaction. However, what's going on when they do that is that they are taking the God who has saved them, the God who, as we saw a few weeks ago, overcame the pantheon of gods in Egypt, who overcame the mightiest empire in the world, who brought them by grace out of Egypt in a miraculous way by his mighty hand. They are taking that God and placing him as just one more God in amongst all of the gods that would have surrounded them. They are robbing God of his glory by worshiping him just like the other gods in the world around them. By copying what they would do, they have stripped God of his glory and they have made him just like Baal or Marduk or Ray. He's just another one. And he no longer has that place high above all the gods. He's no longer king of kings, he's just one of the kings. 
He's no longer Lord of Lords. He's just another Lord. And you can see in this how easy it is for even us as Christians for our worship to lower the God whom we're trying to adore. There are lots of things that we can turn into idols or turn into barriers between us and the God who we gather to worship on a Sunday morning. So I think the big one that we often have is that whenever we worship together like this and we sing various songs, how many of us get frustrated at either the style or the song choice and forget about why we've come here in the first place. How many of us show up to church on a Sunday morning thinking, I can't wait to see what I get out of this, rather than thinking, I am here to serve the God who has given me so much. We gather this morning to worship and to worship hopefully in a way that lifts our God aloft and says, behold, in awe and wonder, what our God is like. And there are so many ways that we can build little idols in our heart, our little hobby horses that prevent us from ever really drawing close, from ever really getting in and offering worship. You know, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says, you know, one of the ways that this can happen is whenever people say that, you know, I, I know God forgives me, but I can never forgive myself. Because he says, whenever you say that I can never forgive myself, even if I know God forgives me, that means that you have an idol in your heart whose approval you are looking for more than God's. We can correct all sorts of idols in our hearts. It is one of the most natural things for us to do because there are so many things that will crop up to keep us away from God and act as a barrier between us and him. Idolatry resides in all of us, but why does it do it? What's the heart of it? What's the heart of it? I think the heart of it is really interesting because whilst we might want to point the finger at the Israelites and say they were slow, they were stupid for building this golden calf, Hopefully you can see how easy it would have been for, for even us to get wrapped up in it. Because if you look down with me, what happens is at the start of the chapter, they see that Moses has been so long in coming down, they think Moses is gone. And so they, they, they want to express worship. You know, they want to give thanks. And what's interesting is that you may notice um, there is a bit of a footnote to the fact that it says God. And that's because in the Old Testament, um, Whenever you see God with a capital G used to refer to the covenant God, um, that is the plural form of the Hebrew word Elohim. So generally, whenever it refers to a false God, it will just say Elohim. But when it refers to the covenant God, the God that you and I believe in, Yahweh, it will refer to Elohims. Um, it's a bit of a weird grammatical thing, and I'm, you, don't want to, you don't want to lecture on Hebrew grammar at this time in the morning. Um, but it's interesting because the people are looking for God. They are wanting to worship God the most natural thing, but the issue is they want to do it in a way that mimics the cultures around them. And so they begin to run amok. We see that they begin to, to bring the glory of their God down and they begin to bring um, his name into ruin and they become a laughing stock amongst their enemies as we read. And Moses is distraught at all this. 
And he asks Aaron, how can this happen? And Aaron gives him some excuse. But we can see how easy it is for our desire to want to worship to actually sometimes ruin us if it's placed in the wrong thing. St. Augustine famously said that, oh Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We all worship something this morning. That may be God, that may be the God of Christianity, or that may be a myriad of things that we have in our hearts. The um, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard in his book, um, Suffering Unto Death, says that what you worship is where you get your identity. What you worship is where you get your identity. So if I can ask you this morning, what is the most important thing about you? What is the most important thing about you? Because the answer to that question will so often show us where our heart and our worship truly lies. It's kind of like that other great famous philosopher, Sylvester Stallone, said in the Rocky films. Whenever he's getting distressed because he's going to fight Apollo Creed, and he realizes he can't do it, and he goes into Adrian, his girlfriend, and he, he begins to say how he has to do it. He has to defeat him. And he says that the reason he has to do it, he has to go the distance, is because whenever he stands there and the bell rings for the first time in his life, he'll know that he's not just another bum from the neighborhood. What's he getting at there? Where his identity lies is in whether or not he can defeat Apollo Creed and prove who he is. Because could you imagine what happened in the Rocky films if Rocky hadn't won the fight? There would be no franchise. But also, Rocky would have been crushed. And for so many of us, we will give ourselves and we will worship idols and look for an identity in them that will ultimately crush us. You know, we love our kids, but if we look to get our identity from them, we are placing a burden on them that will crush them and crush us when they don't live up to it. If we look for our identity and our, our purpose and our meaning in, in our job and the fact that we are a hard worker, we will become cold and calloused to our families. And by the time we get to retirement age, we'll realize that we have nothing left to retire to. If we are looking to try and craft an identity for ourselves on social media by being at the right place, having the right thing, looking the right, the right way, having the right clothes, we are engaged in this Sisyphean task, that ongoing task that will never reach an end of always needing more and more and more and more and never being satisfied. Our God has made us with an infinite appetite that only the infinite can satisfy. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So what's the solution to this? What's the solution, the remedy for us to be able to get out of this, this pit, this problem? Well, if idolatry is trying to relate to God in a way other than the way he's prescribed, Obviously, then, the way we remedy this is we go to God in the way that he shows us and demonstrates for us. You may have noticed that after this, this act of idolatry, Moses goes up the mountain again. In verse 31, or in verse 30, apologies, he says that he will now go up 
to the Lord. And perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses goes and stands before God to try and make everything right. And in fact, we even read earlier on in the chapter that whenever Moses turned to God and said, look, the, you, and he intercedes for the people, he prays on their behalf to God and says, God, don't destroy them because then the Egyptians will think that you're just malicious. And it says that God relented. Moses goes up and stands between the people of God and Yahweh and says, God, have mercy and forgive them. Forgive them, wipe it out, blot the slate clean. And we read that God does it. Because the Lord replies to Moses, says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But he doesn't blot all of Israel out of his book. Many of them survive and they will go to become a great nation. Why? Because God's purpose for them, as we read in verse 10, is that he will make them into a great nation. God is working to bring this people out of their horrible bondage and slavery and slavery even to the idols that they will craft with their own hands, make them a great nation. And Moses is there interceding on their behalf, trying to plead God for forgiveness on their behalf. Do you see how this passage is paving a way for Jesus? Do you see how this passage is, is causing us to look forward? Because we know that Moses, Moses intercedes a wee bit and God relents, but we want there to be more forgiveness, don't we? We want there to be even more freedom. We want there to be even more taken off our backs. And we're pointed to an even greater savior than Moses. We're pointed to Jesus. You know, we read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that um, it says, therefore, in chapter three, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly dwelling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Moses is faithful and represents the people of God before, or represents the people of God before, before God. But Jesus does that for all of us in an even richer and more meaningful way whenever he doesn't allow the plague to come upon us. He doesn't allow the curse to come upon us, but he takes it upon himself and bears it on our behalf. And not only that, as Moses interceded and prayed for the people at the, at before God on Mount Sinai, we have a high priest who as of this very moment is interceding for us. Have you ever thought of this comfort? That's one of, my, one of my favorite things that we believe as Christians. That the Savior we believe in is not some historical figure, it's done and dusted. But where we say Jesus is right now is he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for you. That your Savior at this very moment is praying for you. Now, you may feel guilt of the times you've got things wrong. You may feel ashamed of the sins you've committed. You may feel that your heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And you may feel that you'll never get close to God. But here is the thing. Our hope doesn't rest in how clear or pure our hearts are, but it rests in our Savior Jesus, who at this very second is praying for you. And how will his Father not give him everything he prays for? even your heart. That's the hope we believe, that we have a great high priest, as we sang earlier, whose name is love, 
whoever lives and pleads for me. Our hearts may be perpetual factories of idols, but our Savior is a wonderful, wonderful high priest who intercedes for us perfectly and bears our sins away. And let, let's, let's trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf. Lord, though we may sin, though we may get things wrong, remind us of the perfection of our blessed Savior, whoever lives and pleads for us. For it's in his wonderful name that our prayers reach you. Amen.